Hey guys, this week's episode is brought to you by Avalanche. Avalanche solves the biggest challenges facing Ethereum's developer and decentralized finance or DeFi community. That is velocity, security, and time to finality under three seconds on the first decentralized network resistance to 51% attacks. With complete support for the Ethereum virtual machine and all of the tools that have fueled DeFi's growth to date, including MetaMask, Web3.js, MyEtherWallet, Remix, and many more coming, Avalanche will be at parity with Ethereum for DeFi developers that want a much faster network without the scaling issues holding them back. Get started today building without limits on Avalanche by going to chat.avax.network. That is chat.avax.network. Thanks. We'd also like to take this time to inform you on how Hashing It Out is teaming up with Panvala to help fund the ecosystem of, of Ethereum. How did we do that? Well, Hashing It Out podcast with support with Status.im and Consensus Diligence has organized the staking cluster with Panvala, giving us access to a whole bunch of the PAN tokens allocated to this round of Gitcoin grants. The total in the Hashing It Out community has 29% of the pool of about 1.5 million PAN tokens, which is worth approximately $50,000. This is the $50,000 that has been allocated towards the Gitcoin grants of people's choosing on top of the larger amount of Gitcoin grant allocation by Gitcoin themselves. So you get additional matching by donating with PAN. So how does this work? When you donate with PAN tokens to the Gitcoin grants we've selected as, as hashing it out, your donation will, will be receiving matching funds from both the Panvala issuance as well as the Gitcoin issuance. This, is, this current multiplier is roughly about 5x what you contribute. And so these are the grants we've curated for you, which we think they're important for the ecosystem. So you don't have to go shuffling through the tons and tons of, of uh, potential grants out there in Gitcoin grants. We've selected some for you that we think are important to help maybe curate your, your selection process. That is the Nimbus F2.0 project, blockchain security database, Fuel Labs, the Ethereum 2.0 annotated specification, white hat hacking, Lodestar, Ethereum 2.0 client, DeFi Pulse Registry, LexStyle Standardized Legal Goods on Ethereum, and Solidity Visualizer Extension. If you don't remember all that, that's fine. Go to the link in the description. It has links to all of these things, as well as a link to a, a cart that allows you to immediately get these into your cart to uh, fund things as well. So how do you donate? First, you need to get some PAN tokens. You can do that by using Uniswap. Currently, version one has more liquidity than version two. As a note, 28 pan is worth about one US dollar and 6,000 pan is worth about one F. Next, go to the Gitcoin link in the description. Add the, add the ones that you like to your cart. And, or you can just follow the link provided in that description that adds them all to your cart and you allocate your pan to the projects you like the most. From there, all the magic happens in the background where you get additional matching from both our Panvolic pool, as well as the Gitcoin grants pool to make your money stretch a little bit further and help the ecosystem of Ethereum grow faster. Also note, at the time of this recording, you've got a little under two days to get those donations in before this grant round ends. I know that's a little late, uh, but we'll be doing this again further and further, continuing this process and continuing to curate projects we think uh, that are valuable to Ethereum to help you decide how to make your money stretch Stay in touch. We'll keep this partnership rolling with Panvala to help try and uh, support the ecosystem of Ethereum. Thanks. 
Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back to Hashing It Out. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty, with my co-host today, Dean Eigenman. And today we have a special treat for you. We got Vitalik Buterin on the show to talk about all kinds of things. We're not quite sure yet, but we'll we'll dive into a second. Uh, so um, I don't think you really need much of an introduction, but I'll allow you to introduce yourself, Vitalik. Why don't you tell us who you are, what you do, uh, why you're here. Yeah, I mean, so I'm Vitalik Buterin. I'm the uh, co-founder of uh, Bitcoin Magazine. I uh, wrote some articles for that for about uh, two years. I guess I, I did some uh, some other things, you know, like this kind of blockchain called Ethereum since then. Um, uh, I mean, I do lots of things. I mean, I do uh, kind of, I mean, thinking, protocol research, like, all, sort, all sorts of different topics. So I'm happy to talk about uh, any and all of the things I've been up to. Right on. Uh, where to start? So like, uh, I guess for heads up, this is a relatively technical audience, uh, more focused on kind of decentralized systems. Uh, we talk a lot about kind of the different protocols and technologies used within Ethereum and other more popular blockchains. Uh, so you can speak as deeply as you'd like to. If, you, if we feel like you've gone too deep, I might bring you back to surface or, or re-say what you've said in a, in a I don't know, a different framework to see if someone else grasps it. So to start off, like, this is something me and Dean were talking about a little bit before. Uh, do you have any, like, I don't know how to put this appropriately, like, I don't know, regrets or things you would have done differently about Ethereum mm. if you were to start now? Um, what is it something, what is a decision that you made back then that kind of got locked into the system that uh, maybe constrained you uh, a little too much? Yeah, no, I, I definitely have uh, lots of examples of that. I mean, some large, some small. So, like, just to kind of give a sample of kind of really small and uh, kind of in the weeds things. Um, like, you, the fact that we use uh, like hexary trees instead of binary trees to store the state, um, and that was originally intended so that we we did it we could um, access storage keys with four times uh, fewer database accesses, um, but. It, it, it later turned out that it was completely unnecessary and made witnesses kind of four times bigger than they had to be. And so now that's something that we just have to basically completely re-architect and kind of replace with binary trees. So there's a lot of uh, kind of little decisions uh, that we made like that. And another uh, one, for example, would even just be kind of gas costs. So like we didn't really do a good job of uh, kind of setting those at the beginning. Um, so lots of uh, kind of little technical choices um in terms of uh, kind of zooming out into i guess uh, the bigger things uh, beh behind those decisions i think uh, i mean we definitely did uh, kind of 
underestimate how much uh, how much time it would take to kind of f- finish a, a lot of the things that we didn't start back in uh, 2015. So we're going to prove a stake in sharding probably being uh, kind of some the two uh, kind of biggest things. And had we known that it would end up taking us years, um, we probably would have uh, kind of designed the roadmap uh, kind of even uh, kind of differently thought about uh, kind of how uh, what the different teams uh, would be working on differently and making a kind of a lot of uh, decisions in that regard in a very different way from uh, how we are now. Uh, so I think uh, definitely a lot of uh, kind of regrets and wasted time in that regard. Um, also, just pretty much every technical feature that we're trying to kind of mm-hmm. implement on the Ethereum side now, you know, whether it's like account abstraction, whether it's fee market reform, like how much easier would it be if transactions had version numbers uh, and all of those things. Um, another probably example of something on the kind of less technical and I guess more political economic front uh, would be thinking uh, like, about uh, kind of the the multi client uh, kind of strategy, for example, right? So I f- I feel like in ETH one kind of we approached it fairly half heartedly, like we uh, said that you know all we really want to have a multiple clients, you know we don't want to have this kind of single client, uh, you know developer aristocracy that uh, kind of I perceive to be one uh, one of the major flaws of Bitcoin. Um, but at the same time, you know we didn't really do a very good job of it, like when when we started off, it was basically kind of almost a guest monopoly right from the first month. And then parity came in for a bit and things became a bit better. And then you know, parity is uh, kind of the team stopped, wor- uh, stopped working on parity and, the, and then it's gone back to one client. And now there's a couple of other clients, but they're still uh, kind of catching up. Um, also, just uh, another example of uh, something uh, kind of once again, more on this uh, kind of more economic side um, and the kind of community side that also has to do with us just kind of underestimating how long uh, things would take is that we approached a lot of uh, kind of early decisions with the mindset that, you know, we'd be building for four or five years and after four or five years, the thing would stabilize. And now it's looking like we'll be building for something like 10 to 15 years and maybe after 10 to 15 years uh, and if, you know, altogether, like starting from uh, 2013, uh, we will start to uh, kind of see a reprieve. And so as a result, um, you know, we started off uh, with uh, this, uh, even just one example of this would be uh, some like uh, just the ether distribution, right? So, you know, we had this kind of free mine, 12 million coins, 6 million to early contributors, 6 million to the foundation. Out of the 6 million to the foundation, 3 million went to another set of early contributors. And so what happened is that like 75% of the pre-mine went to people who did work in the first year of Ethereum's existence, basically. Well, the first 15, 16 months, basically. But like the reality is that the people that kind of really deserve to get that funding, ideally would be kind of people spread out across the entire five years, right? So, I mean, now, of course, it would be kind of like much more difficult to like try to add more pre-mines into, uh, into Ethereum or a kind of do Zcash style death funding or whatever. But like, had we had more foresight around those uh, issues at the, be- uh, at the beginning, I think uh, we, we probably could have avoided a lot, a lot of the issues that we have right now. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, like, it's, yeah. so speaking to that foresight, right? It's hindsight is 2020. It's easy to kind of see those lessons learned from the kind of friction we have today. Right. And mm-hmm. I guess, 
thinking about that, like, why do you think, like, how, how could you have seen these things back then? Uh, were you, were you like looking, were you, were you optimizing for a particular thing and not seeing these issues at the same time? Or we were not thinking about how each individual decision was going to scale. Like, did you not consider what state bloat would, when, when state bloat would actually become a problem because Ethereum was wildly successful and you didn't quite foresee it happening that fast. Like there's a lot of small things I think that, um, are difficult to like really blame yourself for not thinking about early on. Uh, which turned out to be an issue today. And there are also some things that maybe you like, you probably should have been thinking about. Have you thought about the, that, that, that perspective and what you could or should have been thinking about or like uh, things you just like, we didn't know, we didn't know better back then. All we had was Bitcoin as the model. And so Ethereum changed a lot and now we know. Mm -hmm. And I was definitely guilty of like what psychologists call the, the, the planning fallacy in a lot of cases which is just like underestimating how long things would take. And like, if I was wiser, I definitely would, I, I think, could have even then not fallen to, into that trap. And like a lot of things, like even the state size issues, for example, stem from that. Like, I think uh, how, like part of the reason why I wasn't thinking about that so much might even have been like, oh, we'll have to be years of state size growth. And then after that, we'll move to sharding. And mm. The reality is that we'll move to sharding after, like, or even stateless clients after maybe seven years of uh, state size growth. Um, seven years of state size growth with uh, 12 million gas women instead of the 3 million that we uh, had uh, originally planned for. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, another thing would be uh, um, that, like, when I started Ethereum, I knew, like, very little about um, even, like, just basic things about like starting a project, uh, kind of fig like figuring out uh, kind of who the team should be and uh, and things like this. So like a lot of the kind of initial people that ended up getting very high positions early on in the Ethereum community are people who like basically were just like the first 15 people to respond to my uh, yeah. email announcing the white paper or people that I just kind of, you know, randomly like got to know on my travels from the uh, end of the half year before that. Uh, so I like, like, I do feel like kind of the Ethereum ecosystem has a kind of wiped the, or kind of wiped the slate clean uh, kind of multiple times on a lot of occasions. And I feel like things have uh, kind of improved a lot in the last two years, but there was still uh, kind of a lot of time that we ended up losing as a result of that. Uh, so I think, yeah, like, I guess. A lot of the technical problems and are really kind of consequences of people problems. So, what are you what are you doing with ETH two to kind of avoid making those same mistakes so that in three years we don't run into the same issues? What what makes the process more rigorous? Is it the fact that you have the, all these other client developers now helping you out, or? Mm. So, one uh, very deliberate decision that we made with ETH two very early on is basically saying that the Ethereum Foundation will not be uh, running its own kind of real client team, right? The Ethereum Foundation does have a Trinity, but I mean, the reason I say real in quotes is that Trinity runs on Python and Python is a way slower programming language than the others. And so it's kind of... Reference. Like, it, yeah, I mean, it, it, exactly. It's a kind of reference and it's not meant to be like a performance node that you would run as a staker. And it's uh, like... And that kind of helps all of these other East 2 teams uh, to, to be on a uh, 
significantly more even footing. Um, also, I would say that we do have a, a kind of much more rigorous uh, a kind of research and uh, spec development uh, process this time around. Like every single one of the decisions in the spec is the result of uh, kind of quite a lot of thinking and uh, kind of quite a lot of arguing between you know myself, Danny, and Justin, Shelway, and uh, kind of some other people, and uh, like there's more thought going into it. There is more of a kind of explicit goal of simplification uh, going into a lot of the decisions. Uh, so I'm definitely trying to uh, kind of do a lot in that regard. And, and also just a kind of conscious uh, feeling that, you know, this could be the last chance that Ethereum ever has to make uh, basically a serious re-architecture. So we just need to make a really good job of it. So you mentioned earlier, like, uh, one of the main things you wanted uh, in original Ethereum was kind of a multi, multi-client implementation and you kind of regret that not happening early. Do you feel like we've almost gone full swing the other way and we have too many implementations attempting to, to be part of F2? Um, I mean, it's definitely possible, though I think uh, that I mean, we're not doing that bad a job, right? So like I... I the uh, Altona test network launched with uh, four implementations and they seem to all be doing pretty well. And, and I do remember that at the beginning, the number of implementations that people were talking about was huge. It was like something like seven or eight. Um, and some of the ones that were kind of, that didn't end up sort of making it into that four have uh, kind of naturally evolved into something that would be useful in a different context, I suppose. I, so, and even just, in the Trinity is, uh, and itself, like we, you know, we knew it would not be one of the kind of major clients that people would use to validate from the beginning. But you know, it's a Python implementation. It's still providing value. Lots of people use Python and wants to access uh, you know, the blockchain, the blockchain with Python. And some of those kind of the other implementations that weren't uh, that aren't like Prismatic Lighthouse and, and Nimbus and Teku are also uh, trying kind of doing some other things. I know like the Harmony team, I think they ended up merging with the the, the consensus uh, kind of Java team. So that also ended up kind of collapsing two into one, which also helped. Uh, so I think, I mean, I definitely remember having the fear that we would end up like splitting our efforts among eight different uh, clients, but I think like four strong ones is, our, is pretty close to about the right balance. I'd say so too. My personal, my, my personal opinion, because they're written in different languages, which opens up kind of the the developer pool for attaching whatever thing they want to do using their language of choice, all using this, mm-hmm. the same underlying data, which is I think is is, is quite important. It is. Like opening up a little more broader and not being maybe like specific towards Ethereum or Ethereum two, like. Um, after the amount of experience that you've had in the space and in the research that you've done and the problems you've faced, um, how do you feel like the blockchain space as a whole? What are some barriers that you didn't quite understand previously that you see now? Of like, like where is this technology actually useful? Um, because mm-hmm. when we, when, we like when Bitcoin and, and, and Ethereum kind of exploded, we went on this full scale tilt of decentralize all the things. Let's mm-hmm. what, let's let's just revamp everything that we've ever thought of and put it on on a DAP or a, its own blockchain or whatever. And a lot of those use cases were stupid and they're never going to work. Like, where do you where do you see this thing fitting now, and why do you see it like actually being useful in the larger social scale? 
Hmm. So I can briefly go into a kind of one of the challenges that I uh, didn't uh, kind of appreciate um, in terms of this uh, kind of should we, can we blockchainify everything uh, kind of push. Mm-hmm. So looking at decentralized governance, right? Like I think uh, the the thing that I was hoping for five years ago was that you know we would be able to create kind of optimal decentralized governance algorithms the same way that we could create say optimal proof of stake algorithms, and we could cre- actually create like some kind of mathematical economic thing that would basically uh, kind of direct money toward like what you know what we call public goods i mean including protocol development and including these other things and that the thing that we create like we could even create a DAO that would be part of the ethereum protocol or you know create a DAO that um and that this construction would uh, kind of actually manage to kind of not have any really uncomfortable trade-offs in it um, and the thing that I discovered as a uh, part of my economics research, right? This was uh, kind of the topic of that article I wrote uh, kind of on collusion about one year ago, which is basically that if you want to make a mechanism for a kind of a particular set of functions and particularly like anything having to do with public goods, anything that's kind of vulnerable to things like the tragedy of the commons then the problem basically is that if you give people like basically if you give people leverage right if you give people the ability to say i am only sacrificing one dollar in order to give ten dollars to like this development team which is something that you have to do if you want to fund anything better than by than you can by just having donations which are just totally insufficient then you run into the problem of like well you know, what if the developer bribes people to vote for them? Or what if, uh, like, people create many accounts and they collude with each other and they pretend to be a crowd of people? And it turns out that these uh, kind of economic constraints are pretty fundamental. And to get around those constraints, you pretty much have to have, like, one is some kind of identity, uh, uh, kind of, like, unique human verification. And the other is some kind of anti-collusion. So like the equivalent of of like coercion resisted voting, like basically giving, not giving people the ability to prove how they participated. And there's a lot of uh, kind of technical trade-offs inherent in implementing that kind of design. And so basically the problem that this leads to is that if you want to create one of these public goods funding gadgets that has economics that are anywhere remotely close to optimal, then it comes with these uh, kind of uncomfortable technical trade-offs. And the uncomfortable technical trade-offs are, I think, okay for layer two. So they're okay for something like uh, Gitcoin grants, for example, which, uh, you know, gets money from diff- from a kind of matching funding from different sources. But if it ends up being broken, then those sources do have kind of the ability to switch to another one. But it would not be okay for something uh, like at the base layer protocol. And it would not be okay for a construction that tries to maintain a pretense of being fully autonomous. Um, so I guess that's uh, kind of one of the kind of unfortunate negative results uh, that we've, uh, that we've seen that uh, kind of, I mean, it definitely makes me a little sad, but, but also definitely just kind of illustrates, I think, what is the key reason behind some of the failures of uh, trying to uh, kind of create decentralized protocols that decentralize the much more powerful functions in the space. So the reasons why like things like delegated proof of stake end up collapsing into being really plutocratic if you try to use them for funding, um, you know, the reason why 
you have these kind of bribing scandals in like Steam and Tron or whatever. And so that's, yeah, so that's one example of like a concrete thing that I guess I had hoped would be possible, but now it turns out that it's only uh, possible with these significant trade-offs, which means that you can only, like, you can, we can still do it and we've done it and it has great results, but you can only kind of do it with caveats and you can't, and like, you can't really do it at the kind of multi-billion dollar scale by putting it right into the layer one logic of a blockchain. Um, aside from, I, I would even say that, like, most of the uh, things that it turns out you can't do on a blockchain without serious trade-offs end up having to do with like either these collusion issues, like basically where if you have an anonymous system, you have no way of proving that the uh, participants aren't colluding with each other and the economics only works if people aren't colluding with each other. Um, or it has to do with the fact that the blockchain just like doesn't know things about the real world. And to know things about the real world, you need oracles and oracles become subjective. And then that's uh, kind of requires, you know, one of these systems like Augur and that like limits the scale at which they can operate. So in a lot of, in a lot of cases of like things that we wish we could do and, and actually like it's, it, it's not that simple. I think it ends up being one of those two. Is it, it sounds like uh, if, if we call these digital scarcities that we're making, um, like money, like money can't talk by itself. That seems to be the main issue. There has to be something else mm -hmm. attached to it uh, from a yep. human perspective or like identity perspective that makes the actual like human systems we're trying to build on top of this actually right. work without without like these you know side cases of uh, collusion or or like malfeasance and whatever you're trying to do. Is that yeah, and I think uh, another way of thinking about this is that like if you're creating systems that try to compensate for a kind of complicated flaws of humanity, then your system has to contain kind of built-in models about what the flaws of, the, of uh, its participants are. And those assumptions can easily turn out to be very false. And so like trying to make something incredibly general almost makes it so you can never actually build in these mm -hmm. more specific systems at the base layer and they're delegated to something built on top. Right, exactly. Like you okay. can make very general things for some use cases, you know, like, like you can make Uniswap and it works great, but like it's, it's a very kind of concrete laundry list of applications. It's not like, you know, everything minus a couple of things. Mm -hmm. Are you happy with a, like the, the, the pace of development across the board or is it, is it, has it been too slow over the, over the years? And as I mentioned, it's definitely slower than I had hoped. So I guess my hopes probably were unrealistic. Um, Though, one thing that we probably could have done, I suppose, and I wonder if this would actually be, this is me thinking out loud, I wonder if this would have been net better or net worse. So like for the move to proof of stake, switching to some crappy proof of stake protocol, like say even just cloning whatever was in Beerpoint or NXT at the beginning, and then kind of upgrading to like Casper FFG over time. Um, like if we had done that, then maybe we would have proof, like proof of stake of some kind uh, kind of sooner. And then we would have better proof of like potentially even now. And then we would have better proof of stake, like still a year from now. Um, and like, basically I, I wonder if like earlier on, had we made uh, kind of those kinds of pragmatic choices of like, let's make a simpler thing first and then do the more complicated thing later. 
that we would not have, uh, like, might we have had a uh, better, a better system or kind of generally a better kind of pro path of progress than we have today? I don't know. You mentioned kind of like proof of stake, and um, I think it's been argued quite a bit. But I'm I'm in the camp that proof of stake and proof of work, for the most part, are civil mechanisms. Um, and that underlying consensus hasn't changed too much. It's just depending on how you put the whole network mm -hmm. together to actually get to consensus. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing, yep. in my opinion, a novel consensus come through with Avalanche. Is that something that like could be reasonably used to come to agreements on specific types of things? Now, it changes drastically like the architecture mm -hmm. of the entire network and the way the data is put together and, and what you're actually agreeing to. But it seems as though, from my perspective, that's a really good way of coming to consensus. And then you use something else to deal with civil mechanism i mean ultimately i think uh kind of what like the civil me mechanism does matter more than the specific than the consensus uh, mechanism right like i think uh, like m more than half probably more than two-thirds of why people are excited about proof of stake is like specifically the benefits of like switching from miners to as um, as the base um, and the things that inherently come with miners being the base to stakers being the base and kind of the things that inherently come with stakers being the base and a relatively smaller portion has to do with things like you know the, the concrete specifics of like you know finality in 12 minutes 200 confirmations in six seconds like ffg lmd ghost and any of these details i so, would argue that i would argue that the the the, the main point that I think a lot of people mm -hmm. miss is the separation of consensus with the data it's coming to consensus about the proof of work. Like, like the, the, the mm -hmm. consensus mechanism is very dependent upon what you're agreeing upon, what transactions make it into a specific block and proof of stake. Is maybe it? somewhat. Yeah. Because like, like you, you can't come to an agreement on something until you make the block, which kind of change, like gives you a, 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 a inherent heartbeat of the entire network. As, oh, I see. You're referring to like a kind of batch by batch consensus as opposed to separate consensus on each individual thing. Yeah, I think it, um, I think it, it it pigeonholes you into specific architecture by making that decision. Yeah, I agree. I mean, though I I do think that all things considered, batch by batch consensus is superior, and ultimately it is going to win. Um, like I think. There is a lot of benefits of batch by the batch by batch approach uh, that people don't realize. So, like for example, even like white clients, right? The like the the possibility of white clients comes from the fact that you have a kind of a block header as a stand-in for a block, which itself is only possible if you have batching, right? Mm -hmm. And if instead you just have transactions as your base unit, and if you have O of n transactions, then your DAG structure has complexity O of n. That would make a lot, uh, I mean, that makes white client techniques fundamentally much harder. Whereas in uh, a batch, a batch based system, a white client has that kind of fundamental complexity O of one, right? So that's, that's one example. Another example is like, if you look at the economics, so like basic in a batch by, uh, in a system that's not batch by batch, like what actually makes one transaction win relative to a competing transaction is much less clear. Um, and so like the economic analysis of like, how do you actually make sure that there are like, if you have, you know, 10% of the stake, you can't do crazy things to give you an unfair advantage in like helping transactions get included is, um, like that sort of economic analysis becomes much more murky. And I actually think that like 
the approach of uh, batch by batch, block by block consensus, where you basically say, you know, every 10 seconds we elect a dictator who chooses the blocks and the dictator just has the ability to choose whatever. And the dictator is the kind of what economists call the full marginal claimant of uh, transaction fees. So if they get more fees, they get all the revenue. Like there is a lot of uh, kind of economic simplicity from uh, that, that kind of model that I think a lot of people are missing and that kind of removes a lot of nasty edge cases. Then is it, what, what's more fundamental here when you're talking about these systems? Because I guess like the, the innovation in a lot of ways, it, especially for permissionless public blockchains, is a digital scarcity that people can rely upon or have more reliance upon. Um, it, does, does the economics become the most fundamental thing to that system or is it the underlying technology that facilitates the economics? And the technology kind of both facilitates economics and is economics. Right, mm-hmm. like the application, a lot of the applications that happen on top of these platforms are clearly kind of economic in nature. But um, the reasons why you know miners or validators are honest in the first place, instead of just like shutting down or trying to attack the network or you know doing whatever other stupid thing, like that is ultimately because of like economic arguments, right? It's because you have fees, rewards, incentives, and all uh, and all of that stuff. So you can't really evaluate the technology uh, in isolation from the economic aspects of what makes the technology work. That's fair. So, so if we kind of move back to the, to the idea that we all kind of agree that development in this space is a little slow. I think from your from your endpoint, Vitalik, it came mainly from like layer one development, specifically on Ethereum. How, how do you feel about development on top of Ethereum, though? Has that? Do you think that's at a pace where we think it's good? Because like about, and you also mentioned a good point about like DAOs, where I feel like everyone kind of realized that DAOs may not work that efficiently either. Because like last year, everyone was talking about DAOs, and now the <laughs> thing we're talking about is no longer DAOs; it's DeFi. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we can kind of take a case by case approach to this. Um, like I think it really does differ depending on kind of which vertical you focus on. So like, for example, DeFi, obviously, you know, way more action than I had expected there would be. Um, Is that, uh, before you continue there, I think it's just because we gave DeFi a name. I mean, it's, we've been talking about it the entire time. Sure. Now we just have a more okay. concrete, understandable name mm-hmm. to it. Yeah, and there's there's different aspects of DeFi though, and you know we have the thing the the aspects of DeFi that we that we kind of predicted back then. We have like stable coins, we have Dai, um, and we have uh, fairly uh, good decentralized exchanges, uh, and we have a lot of that kind of simple stuff. Um, and I and like to me, like over eighty percent of the value of DeFi is basically you know, stable coins or like synthetics more generally and a decentralized exchange. Like I think like those two things combined are basically like by far the most important part of that entire space. And then everything else is like much less important relatively, even though in the short term, it can give you like 140% interest rates or whatever, you know, people get excited about for a week before they forget about it because like the interest rates disappear. Um, Subsidies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Subsidies are great. And (laughs) Yeah. The, um, so, okay, outside of DeFi, um, well, let's just kind of walk through it thing by thing. 
Um, privacy tech, I think uh, at the beginning, uh, slower than I hoped, but I think it's massively picked up over the last year. Um, so we have Tornado Cache and that's like a simple dumb thing and you can use it, um, which I think uh, like is really important. Um, Umbra, um, which is the stealth addresses uh, on Ethereum uh, that got uh, done at a hackathon and now it's uh, kind of continuing to work. I, I forget the URL, it's either Umbra.cash or something similar. I think it's going to be releasing soon. Um, there's also the Aztec team that's the work, uh, uh, that's been uh, doing a lot of work on creating a kind of m much fancier version of, uh, a kind of privacy preserving a uh, layer two on Ethereum. There's Zexy. There's, uh, uh, there's at least a couple of Tornado Cash alternatives. I, I even uh, forget their names now. So a lot of things that are kind of large and small. Um, I mean, zero knowledge proofs in general have made huge progress, um, in the last year. Right? I think, uh, kind of, what I call the polynomial commitment revolution. This is kind of this uh, academic shift that happened in September last year, where people realized that like, you can just use polynomial commitments as a base ingredient and then just describe everything as computations over polynomials and you can make these uh, kind of really powerful and really generic constructions. That's uh, fed up development in the space by like a factor of 10. Um, and now we're talking about, you know, lookup and like uh, zero knowledge VMs and a lot of a lot of stuff. So Huge progress there. Um, smart contract wallets. Um, I keep wanting them. Less mm. progress than I hoped for. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah. I worry. I, think, I worry about those a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, probably the reason, the two reasons behind that, I mean, one is, of course, that just smart contract code in general is uh, like proves to be harder to secure than we had expected. And there are smart contract co like wallets that are, that seemingly kind of solidly secure, right? Like there's Gnosis safe. I mean, there's even the original multi-sig that has uh, the Ethereum Foundation's uh, 580,000 Ether in it. Um, and there's a couple of others. But, you know, it's kind of, I, the other big part behind it, I think, is that like smart contract wallets are just fundamentally kind of more difficult to work with because instead of sending a transaction directly from your account, you're sending a transaction from one account and then into the contract and into another thing. And like it starts getting complicated. And even the privacy technology, I think, is like really held back by the lack of account uh, abstraction for uh, quite a bit of time until we figured out how to work around that with like the gas station uh, or with uh, the gas station network and so forth. So yeah, smart uh, contract wallets, uh, definitely less than I had hoped. Um, DAICOs, and there's definitely some people that are doing it. Probably a bit less, uh, a bit less than I had hoped. But I kind of, though, maybe about as much as I had hoped, given that people are kind of less interested in you know launching tokens and coins in general than they were two or three years ago. Um, looking at uh, layer two scaling protocol, um, I mean, I definitely kind of admit to uh, having a huge egg on my face for not pushing the idea and the importance of roll-ups uh, two years uh, sooner than I actually did. Like, the idea was there. I mean, there was even that thing called Shadow Chains uh, from my blog in 2014, but it was just like, somehow did not realize how important it would be. Um, but now, you know, ZK roll-ups, uh, huge progress. We have two of them on mainnet. Optimistic roll-ups are making huge progress, and those can support full smart contracts. So, Lots of, uh, I, I think, good work on those. I mean, Plasma, I think, uh, 
there was a big hope at the beginning that Plasma could eventually be kind of made generic into a full EVM type thing. And the reality ended up being that like Plasma, I, I wrote this as part of my blog post and if I, I forget the, the name of it. Again, it's uh, one of the, I think it was from August on, uh, on Vitalik.ca and it was, uh, or Oh, the, the, uh, the dawn of hybrid layer two protocols. There it is. Um, basically, the problem is that the economics of plasma just kind of fundamentally rely on certain assumptions about the thing that it's securing and kind of the responsibilities that people have and uh, have with regard to the things that they're securing. And so plasma just kind of can't fundamentally be, gen be made generic uh, in the way that we had hoped. But at the same time, plasma can be really useful and valuable for like specific applications, right? And OMG, for example, like, you know, it started off with a lot of excitement that a lot of people kind of gave up on it. And now, you know, it's back and like it's actually going to launch soon. And uh, it seems like it's, you know, going going to do its thing, which is great. I just think maybe um, a little bit of naivety on how general it could be. And now through the research yeah. of trying to actually implement it and make it work, we came to the realization of like, oh, it can do this thing and just that. So if we make, you know, a system that only needs to do this thing then it then we could use it for this particular behavior same thing with state channels and, and that kind of revolution and and so on and so forth yep, and i think that's fair those were all preskirkers mm -hmm. to kind of um understanding mm -hmm. the relationship you're trying to engage in with whatever product you're trying to build and using the appropriate technology for it as opposed to saying we have this technology it's supposed to do everything exactly yeah no, i think that's definitely very fair Hmm. Are you sad about Plasma's fate? Because it was like kind of one of your brainchildren with along with Joseph Poon, right? And it I was. Yeah. You guys invested a lot of time. Do, do you think that the the fact that it died, we at least got, or kind of like, I mean, it's practically dead now. Do, do you think we got enough useful research out of it to justify the amount of time and the amount of people that were working on it? How do you feel about that? I think the thing that I'm happy about is that I feel like we've uh, kind of explored and mapped out the layer two design space to the extent that we have, we feel like we have a comprehensive picture of it in a way that we didn't before. Like we feel like we have a kind of comprehensive view of like, what are the fundamental categories of designs? Um, so like, for example, I feel confident in saying that plasma and state channels are basically the two categories of layer two systems. And there yeah. isn't some missing third category. Um, and like the mathematical kind of characterization there is, you know, if you have O of N stuff off chain, then if you have O of N stuff on chain, then it's not, it's not, it's not one of these full layer twos. If you have zero stuff on chain, then it's a channel. And if you have O of one stuff or kind of less than O of N stuff on chain, then it's a plus plus. And like you can kind of figure out, you, know, like you can actually concretely say like what specific properties and what specific limitations those three things have. And then within rollups, we understand basically what the, at this point, the two flavors are as well. Uh, so I think that, that's been good. And I think, uh, I mean, Plasma, is, it's definitely not completely dead. I and mean, as I said, you know, OMG is like actually being a thing. And it's, uh, I think Plasma is uh, definitely likely to be the correct architecture for, for at least some applications. Um, I do think that kind of, the per application complexity of building a plasma system means that plasma would be used for like a couple of very specific kind of individual applications that have high value and, and not in uh, kind of the long tail. 
and the long tail is all just going to jump onto an optimistic rollup that we're, that kind of copies the EVM. Yeah. How do you see? So go ahead, go ahead, Dean. So with all the one of the issues with layer two that I think was like pointed out from like the very beginning of working on state channels and plasma. I remember discussing it in like I think it was 2018 with the guys at Spank Chain when they were starting their state channels. Is like how how is interoperability going to work on this? Are people like do you see people now working on? wallets that are supporting generic state channels or stuff because for me it feels like i've never used any layer two solution yet and probably one of the reasons i've never used it yet is because it's like not accessible in any way yeah and i think this is a very valid criticism and i think it has not been adequately resolved yet and i mean i like even outside of the context of state channels like even if you look at like rollups for example right like i've been doing a lot of kind of Hanging of specific users and saying, like, hey guys, you know, you're 4% of Ethereum, of uh, the Ethereum gas usage. And, um, you know, you are just doing a bunch of ERC20 transfers. Can you please move <laughs> on to a roll up of what it takes to move you on to a roll up and, like, save yourselves and us a lot of gas money? Yeah. And the lack of wallet support often is a major issue, right? Like, yeah. uh, so realistically, I do think uh, that we are going to have to uh, kind of get like just to kind of bludgeon our way through that problem somehow and and we are starting so like for example i know loopring is coming out with their own wallet that would of course uh, kind of natively support their own roll-up i uh no i mean on the application side there's a couple of applications that are just do payments that are interested in moving to roll-ups and so you know whatever they do it'll they will just have to come up with some kind of a solution in the, in the next couple of months. I do think that what this means in the short term is that the thing that's easier to scale is this is is like things where the scalability is like the thing that needs to be scaled is operations that are within the context of a particular application. Because if you have operations that are within the context of a particular application, then the UI for the application itself can just contain the scaling logic, right? It's kind of, it's like, you know, when you're on loopering and you trade yeah. on the loopering DEX, like that's all stuff that's happening inside the rollup. Yeah. And the whole point of a DEX is that if you have a lot of activity happening and the bulk of the activity is kind of inside the thing and not on the edges. But a lot of other applications have activity that's on the edges and that's more annoying because that means that you have to kind of upgrade the application as at the same time as uh, kind of pushing the users onto rollups uh, more in general. And on the state channel side, I expect state channels are primarily going to be valuable within the context of specific applications. Like I saw uh, there was that state channels uh, demo, I think it was about uh, got released by Liam and his team recently um, for uh, channels to pay for streaming. And that's the sort of thing that you totally can do just with MetaMask within the context of a single application. So that's another example of something I'm less worried about. So yeah, and I guess I'm definitely more bullish about like channels for streaming payments than I am about say a chat like a lightning network type thing being used as way a, a primary way for people to pay each other. Uh, like thing like payments as Payments is easy to scale technically, but it's harder to scale socially precisely because like the users of payments are not kind of conveniently concentrated within one particular application community. 
Mm-mm. It's something that we'll just have to figure out. Yeah, I, I think with like optimistic rollups, for example, which are a pretty simple construct to get scalability going. And as you said, would allow for a lot of these things that are using a lot of gas to be able to move off chain. I, I feel like one of the problems as well is there's no developer incentive because right now it doesn't seem like for me there's a framework that I can spin up in like half a day where my users get given this. It seems like there's still a lot of legwork that I have to do as a developer. Do you think that's one of the this solutions? This is uh, very true. Yeah, I think uh, very true today. Um, optimistic rollups are definitely working in the direction of trying to resolve that. Like they're yeah. trying to make themselves maximally EVM compatible, make it a kind of one-click compile to push your application onto a rollup. So. I, I mean, I, I'm, one of the big reasons I'm bullish about optimistic rollups is precisely because they're the solution that requires the least amount of per application developer effort out of like pretty much ever, anything that we've seen. Yeah. And, and we'll see. Yeah, but that's also part of um, the burden of being a developer and understanding what you're trying to build and the and the appropriate technology for building it. Right? Like you don't. Like, I mm-hmm. guess if, you, if if you're using the model of web app development and like Node.js today, it's not very fair because mm-hmm. we've had yeah. decades of framework building of, of extraction where you can do like, you know, NPM install, whatever the hell you want. And it just kind of works out of the box, relatively speaking to previous days. Right. And this is such mm-hmm. a, a new technology where we haven't had the time to build those frameworks and the knowledge of what piece of tech fits into what, depending on what you're trying to do. And so like, like, like you said, like, yeah, it's a problem now, but it's, it's kind of like a growing, a growing pain. It's just something that's inevitably going to happen as you have a piece of technology that works and an understanding of it. And then the kind of development experience of making sure it's accessible to everyone around it. Mm-hmm. But like talk, thinking back about something you said earlier, um, wallet functionality is, is maybe um, lacking or wallet development is lacking in terms of bringing the user into an application. Uh, I would argue, and maybe this is from my, my, my perspective of working at, working at status and having a wallet inside our application is that like infrastructure as a whole across the ecosystem is relatively poor. So uh, the ability to pool information from a decentralized standpoint is, is relatively difficult, much more difficult than I would hope it should be for kind of the ethos of any peer-to-peer system. So what do you mean by pooling information here? Getting information from the blockchain efficiently. Uh, we have very few, oh, I see. Yeah. especially historical information for that matter, right? This is very true. And uh, no, this is definitely one of the things that I just keep hoping we can put more resources into. Like the thing with fetching historical information is that it should be trivial to even just make a crypto economic protocol for it, or even just like a very dumb state channel payment solution. You know, like I get ask for one receipt of something that happened in the past, you send it to me, like I pay you some really tiny amount. Um, and there's a lot of ways to do it. And like, it's vastly less complex than, you know, full on sharding or like anything consensus layer. And it's still just not something that we've done. Yeah. Why um, is that? Why? Why? I mean, if I, if I were to think about it, it's because we kind of have uh, a single implementation on ETH1 and not a tremendous amount of resources going into expanding what that implementation does other than maintaining it. This is true. Um, and another thing is definitely that like, 
ETH one is in a lot of ways like more complicated than it needs to be. I mean, even just simple things like, uh, you know, the Merkle branches being these really complicated Patricia Bertree branches with RLP is like uh, an, a barrier. Um, and other things, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely uh, fairly little functionality. There's also fairly little uh, uh, work being done into a lot of the kind of secondary components that would be needed for a lot of these markets to operate. So like, for example, even something like peer-to-peer -peer networks that are just dedicated to passing information around, right? Something that could make C channels like work much more easily. Like if, uh, no, no, I'm, if I'm online and I have one address and you're online and you have another address, like how, how do we pass information between each other mm -hmm. of information other than Ethereum transactions? Like, I mean, status, I know you've been, you know, working on mm -hmm. Whisper and like your chat is just increasingly good and that's a great, and there's a great job on that, but just standardizing that kind of network across the ecosystem, uh, and and also just like solving some of the problems, like figuring out a good spam prevention strategy mm -hmm. for it, it would just like solve so much. And in terms of what we can do, I don't know. I mean, I like you. We can like politically push for more funding going into teams that are like trying to solve this uh, problem. You can uh, just uh, work uh, and work on like standardization of what exists so work on trying to kind of improve it tech improve it technically and, and it's hmm i mean one question to ask is like what's an example of a success story of something that used to suck in the ethereum ecosystem and now no longer sucks like actually what would be your answer to that question no one has asked me that uh go ahead dean from a developer standpoint, I'd probably say something like Truffle, mm. but that, that that doesn't really that's developer tool, developer tooling has has grown yeah. tremendously over yeah. the past like since and that's because of the of amount Ethereum. of people, that that is because of the amount of people using it. So that might beg the question: Are there just not enough people using this other stuff to kind of uh, justify mm. the time and financial investment to? Like it's us complaining about it, but is it really that much of a problem that that yeah. needs? Let me give you a perspective here that may be like uh, I guess mm -hmm. helping towards why this is the issue is that uh, when you created Ethereum, you created you created solidity in such a way where it incentivized people who you 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 brought in a very large pool by making solidity look like JavaScript, right? That was a very ubiquitous language. It's very easy to grasp. People had a very good intuition on how it worked. And it brought in a tremendous amount of people in creating smart contracts and developing applications on top of Ethereum. But that, what that does is it drives a lot of people to a specific part of Ethereum. And none of that part is the actual infrastructure. It's, it's just using, uh -huh. it's building things on top of Ethereum. And so in no way, uh -huh. when we scaled out Ethereum and brought, made it popular, did we attract people into building out the infrastructure that served the majority of the people coming in because none of that stuff is like friendly to developers, especially like something like JSON RPC and caching and building an infrastructure. That's not fun in any way, shape or form. Yeah. This is true. Yeah. And no, the Ethereum, even just like the Ethereum protocol is definitely a kind of just opaque and kind of uh, in a lot of ways that I don't like and that we're trying to uh, kind of improve upon with East 2 
Um, Has that been brought up in the process of developing ETH2? Is like, how do we make infrastructure better and more widespread and easily accessible? Because like, when you think about the early days of the ideal, it's like everyone has their own node or a lot of people have their own node and you're not as, as this thing scales, slowly moving towards a more and more centralized set of people who delegate data to those who need it, who are building on top of it. You don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. How are you making decisions now that don't lead to the same conclusion? Hmm. You know, and it's, I mean, I feel like, I feel like there is a kind of general ethos of trying to just make the different parts of the protocol like kind of more legible to people that are trying to interact with it in different ways. But in coming up with like very specific instances of that is a bit trickier. Like mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can jump in there, which is like, uh, at least with East 2 there was a very long discussion on whether JSON RPC should be continued to be used for validator APIs versus like REST APIs. And there was a, a long discussion about like, you know what, we should probably switch to REST exactly because it addresses these issues of um, it's easier to load balance, it's easier to cache and all these things. So I think in that aspect, I think, and this is probably also from the benefit of having more client teams working on ETH2 and having people who are more developer oriented working on ETH2 because like everyone who's worked who's working on ETH2 right now has probably had to work with like JSON RPC and has probably also had to work with a REST API. Mm-hmm. And knows yeah, that it's that much better. That's definitely true. Um, oh, one other example. I mean, I feel like with SSZ, like the number of lines of code you need to write to understand like one specific thing about one specific part of the protocol is lower than it was in RLP. Um, there's and there's like a, a bunch of little things like that that we're I guess uh, trying to do. Um, and then and there's also a kind of layers layers of the protocol other than the consensus layer uh and and those are like a bit further away from myself but i i do feel like kind of in the community in general i mean what's even like things like json rpc versus rest is definitely like one example of that and i feel like there's probably other examples too that's something i wanted to bring up now that you mentioned it um we're running out of time i'm not sure how how long you'd like to go um but uh, in the beginning, and this is something uh, both like in the microcosm of Ethereum as as well as blockchain in general. Uh, in the early days, it was much easier to stay abreast of all of the things that are happening. As time goes on, that has become utterly impossible. Um, mm-hmm. There's no way to be a domain expert in the entirety of blockchain or the entirety of Ethereum for that matter. Uh, as much as as hard as mm-hmm. you can try, and like have a social life and contribute and, and do all the other things you'd like to do as a human. So mm-hmm. how do you, like, what advice would you give to someone who'd like to jump into the space and how do you approach this subject? Where are you spending your time? Um, especially as uh, kind of the, the, the lead scientist of Ethereum and kind of mm-hmm. being the deified entity you are in the space. Um, I mean, I think it's a kind of, the same thing as what happens to any other academic field that kind of starts small and grows over time, right? Like at the beginning, you can kind of wrap your head around everything. And then there's always like five or 10 people that are in the right place at the right time that end up like inventing 55 different things. And then after that, like the low hanging fruit get picked and you have to kind of 
either specialize or and like focus on a few areas or kind of under, understand the big picture or realistically kind of specialize in a few areas and understand the big picture of all the other parts at the same time, which I think is something that still can be done. Um, the, and if the amount of just kind of cross communication and the kind of listening to what people are working on, on the kind of different channels, uh, sort of load has uh, definitely increased a lot over the last two years and, and mostly in a good way. And I think the other good thing is that we've made progress on just making the different parts of progress of the ecosystem more legible to people. Like even just, uh, like updates on the Ethereum blog is one example, like uh, just the ver the threads on like the various different uh, you know ETH research and magicians and other like uh, corners of the of the internet is another example. So there's definitely the places where you can look to uh, kind of understand a lot of the uh, technical things that, that are moving forward. But I mean, at the same time, there definitely is this that kind of big load of information that you just have to uh, uh, kind of get to know over the course of one or two years. Like I remember even when I started uh, like getting into Bitcoin uh, back in uh, 2011 to 2013, I and mean, I started off like not really understanding much. And then mm -hmm. I joined, you know, Bitcoin Weekly and then Bitcoin Magazine and started kind of writing about the, the things that I do understand and often at the beginning more the social things than the, tech, uh, the technical things. And then you just uh, kind of get more experience with the system and you just kind of learn more things over time. And then just, I mean, you definitely should not expect it to be fast, but it definitely does end up happening. So what do you do in your free time? Like, oh, yeah, free time. That's sure that's a funny <laughs> word for you. But like, what what interests you outside of this? Is, this, is it stuff that you continuously kind of uh, look into? That you like doing that has nothing to do with this entire space. Like what? What is who? Like what is Vitalik like that isn't Ethereum? Um, and uh, read a lot, a lot of things. Uh, you know, there's uh, a bunch of uh, books. Um, and the most recent one I started is uh, the the Enigma of Reason, which uh, Glenn Weil recommended to me. So I'll see if there's uh, kind of anything interesting in it. I'm about 10% of the way through and so far it feels like it's just the elephant in the brain with less cynicism, but I guess we'll see if that uh, kind of holds up for the rest of the book. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I get uh, a lot of just kind of reading, thinking, uh, kind of writing uh, about a lot of these kind of Ethereum adjacent things. Mm -hmm. mm. Dean, you got some? No, I think we've kind of almost crossed everything. I could do this for I could do this for hours. So I, I could keep going, but I don't know how much how long how much longer Vitalik wants to sit. I don't know. Talk. I mean I still I still have some time. Okay, then I'll jump back into something which I had noted down before when we were okay. talking about um, getting data from the blockchain is close to impossible. Hmm. It, it seems like constructions like optimistic rollups will only make that harder. I, I can see why you would say that. Um, yeah, I, I would probably say um, there are at the same time efforts that are trying to kind of make things easier. Like, I mean, even things like Incubed, for example, like these uh, kind of crypto economic light clients, like people are trying to kind of 
whack on the problem and uh, get to the point where there is uh, a a solution of some kind. I, I do think that like to, to properly solve this uh, get data from the blockchain problem, like ultimately the solution will have to be either centralized and subsidized by Joe or it'll have to be paid. And yeah. the paid route is like more sustainable in the long run. Uh, so paid basically me like things like channel payments, but it does mean that like we need to actually have the infrastructure and it does mean that people need to be prepared to like basically pay transaction fees, not just for sending transactions, but also reading certain kinds of information. Like I do think that there should be a free tier. Like I think that like reading the information needed to just sync up with the blockchain and verify it should be is something that should be free because like how do you even talk to the chain to make your payments yeah. until you verified it basically? But I mean, accessing history, that's obviously like not something that we should stop considering as being core functionality. I mean, in the context of an optimistic role of like a lot of these things end up boiling down to some form of like basically pay for Merkle path and pay for Merkle path. Like, you know, you have the hash on chain and you have, and like you want a Merkle path with some index. That's a primitive that we can make fairly generic protocols for. And, and so if we kind of build those protocols once, uh, then we could end up making a lot of progress in just like making them uh, reusable. Um, I actually, I'm actually pretty confident that optimistic rollup will end up being a kind of a catalyst for uh, kind of making all of this stuff work well, right? Because one of the properties of optimistic rollups and what I think people want to do with them is that like they don't want everyone to run one of these full nodes that uh, like actually verifies every one of these transactions, right? Like I think they expect most people to be kind of like they expect the sequencer and only a few other nodes to have full state access and for the rest of the uh, uh, participants to be uh, just like basically like clients. And so if we can just like get that structure figured out, then I feel like we can make a lot of progress. So I think yeah. this, this, this data access issue you're talking about is a general problem across computation, right? Like where does access live and how do you access it efficiently with, with, with strong proofs? Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily um, only a part of blockchain. And so you, you feel that optimistic okay. rollups are a good generic way to solve that problem. Thus, giving us a lot of the scalability um, we're looking for. Roll optimistic rollups are one case of the problem, and they could be a good catalyst for making good solutions to the problem, I would say. Okay, so that may end up becoming something like, I'd say, Plasma did, where it was a great idea, but in the process of implementing it, we learned a lot of things, which then led us to a more general solution. And eventually, we'll have just like, this is how you do this specific thing of data access with this amount of uh, you know, validity guaranteeing. I think so. Um, I mean, at consent, I mean, I think like optimistic rollups will be the thing that we use at consensus layer, but kind of the infrastructure around them and the infrastructure around like how people do data access, for example, is definitely something that just needs to go through a couple of rounds of evolution. Okay. Yeah. Um, sharding is, I think, also going to be another catalyst because like sharding is fundamentally about like almost everyone being a white client with respect to almost the entire system. And so, that will just kind of force that infrastructure to be developed. Here's a doozy. Do you see, I see issues coming up with, with sharding in terms of cross shard communication and the difficulties mm -hmm. that are involved with that, that we may not foresee as it stands today. Mm -hmm. um, like, how do you feel about 
that part because like as we as you expand this as you as you break up the state of the underlying blockchain um and how that state is shared across multiple shards that mm-hmm. that adds a tremendous amount of complexity to something that's supposed to be the i guess i would call the simplest part of a system like this mm-hmm. that's true um i think uh it, well and, and a lot of it depends on the application like there's a lot of applications that will be able to just seamlessly keep doing the same thing that they can do today. And there's a lot of applications that would have to change. Um, another thing is that the challenge is relatively much smaller if we're talking about creating a, a massively scalable system where each individual application only has 15 transactions a second versus creating individual applications that scale past 15 transactions a second. Because like generally activity within applications a lot of the time, the simplest way to do it is to just make everything be serial, right? And if you want to improve on that, then you have to parallelize and parallelize and uh, parallelizing it, uh, is hard. But then across applications, there's like, in a lot of cases, there's a kind of like less assumption of uh, kind of like serial communication being required in many cases, not in all cases, right? There are these cases where people expect to be able to do these weird like fancy flash loan things where they do like seven different things at the same time and they collect like four dollars and twenty five cents of arbitrage profits and like uh, pay three dollars and sixty cents of transaction fees for it. And I definitely think that like a lot of those markets are going to become somewhat less efficient as we uh, move into sharding. But uh, and there's a lot of applications that I think would be able to sur- would be able to survive. Like even just token transfers. You can do those asynchronously just fine. Um, Uniswap, you can like transfer into the Uniswap shard, then swap, then transfer back. Um, and a lot of other DEXs work the same way. Um, even things like stable coins, you can move either the tokens or the CDP is between shards as you want. Uh, so there's a lot of these like. Uh, applications where I think there's actually like not that much complexity increase at the application level. But at the same time, that's definitely not true in like literally all cases. I want to make, I want to make an analogy that's kind of near and dear to my heart um, to what you just said. And I want you to tell me if you think that's an, like an, an appropriate analogy and that's of um, computation as the hardware is scaled to multiple cores and yet the software for, for, for right, for, building on those things pretty much main like remained as serial applications for the longest time because parallel computing is hard um Mm -hmm. so over time like for the longest time uh as we built better and better and better processors for computers it was just a single thread a single core and you built software that utilized how fast that core can go and so we got to a point a limit a physical limit of how fast that can go and then we started Mm -hmm increasing like in Moore's law by just adding more and more cores onto a single processor and spreading up the workload across that. But um, for the longest time, even though the hardware was capable of doing much more processing because it had much more uh, flops or, or clocks on, on, on the die, the software couldn't keep up with it because people didn't understand the paradigm of, of splitting up workload appropriately. And so you had this lag of actual benefit in the software because people didn't know how to utilize the hardware appropriately. Um, and so I'm, I'm seeing a similar analogy across this and this with the professor, like in terms of sharding is that, um, as you shard, 
the other applications may lag behind because simple applications still work on a given shard serially because that's kind of how we think about things. And over mm-hmm. time, we'll learn how to build applications appropriately to utilize shards and break up that work appropriately. And that's just not here yet because we haven't really had the opportunity to do it. That's Yeah, that's possible. Like, I think, uh, like, what what might end up realistically happening is that, say, every application that needs to talk to other applications will just be on shard one. And then all the activity that's not of that form will just move to randomly or to random other shards. And that kind of architecture might be able to kind of get us all the way up to, say, 100 TPS. And then, like, it'll be a very gradual process. And, like, the gas prices on the shard where everyone talks to everyone else will kind of start off low and they'll go up fairly slowly. And so individual developers will just kind of start facing the incentive over time and we'll just uh, kind of see the work being done over time to try to make more individual applications uh, kind of more, uh, more capable of running in an asynchronous context. So I don't necessarily even think that this is something that's going to kind of suddenly hit everyone all at once. It's a transition that's, I think, relatively easy to, to sort of ease into. Okay. So looking at sharding and all this stuff which is coming into East 2, it feels like East 2 is going to be a far more complex beast to understand in comparison to ETH1. Does that matter? Is that a problem that like now learning about ETH1 and how it works probably takes like a week? And after all this stuff is launched on ETH2, or once ETH2 is completely launched, it might take you like a, a developer a month to properly understand how everything works. Is that a problem? Because it, it feels like to me, the, the 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 set of people who understand East two is quite small. That's yeah, that's fair, and I think this is a bit a big part of why uh, you know we kind of value simplicity so much uh, in the East two design process. Like basically, you know, it's one of the design principles right at the top of the document because we know that creating a scalable blockchain that does not depend on everyone processing everything is just already pushing complexity up to a pretty high level and, and uh, like we can't afford anymore. Um, and so trying like trying really hard to kind of push everything that we can down to being as simple as possible. And there are things that are being simplified, right? So like, for example, the Miracle trees are being simplified. I think, I guess as that is simpler than our LP in a lot of ways. Um, we don't really have uncles and we don't have and East 2 itself like does, does not like a lot of most of the complexity of East 1 is like at the EVM level and in East yeah. 2 like we're not adding an entirely new EVM which is uh which is good I feel I think and we've even uh, like abandoned uh, some of our kind of more expansive attempts to sort of revamp the VM at the same time as revamping other things uh, so and at the same time, look, we've done a lot of things to try to make the pro- the protocol more understandable to people. So I guess so the answer is like, yes, it is a problem. I mean, I think on net, it's probably worth the trade-off, given that the giving that the trade-off is like basically finding a way for people not uh, like not to have to pay a like seven dollar transaction fee is just to do a couple simple things that they do today, uh, but. Like given that we are making the trade, making the trade off, and we do have a responsibility to try to make it uh, kind of as light as possible within the context of sharding happening. If it works, does it matter? Mm-hmm. 
and this is I think a, like a more of a philosophical argument of like uh, hmm. if F two works appropriately and people are able to do the things we'd like them to do um, with the guarantees and ideals that we kind of set out to do. Uh, mm-hmm. Does it matter if people understand it? Well, if everyone understands it, like how accessible do we need to make it? Because like, like if the people who are working on it understand it and are, are able to like mm-hmm. discuss it, move forward, and do the things, then that's what matters. So do we do? Should we have to care if if it's accessible to everyone? And I mean, of course, that's like on the far end. No, not everyone's going to accept it. But like, where's the threshold? How far do we have to go? And why is it? I mean, definitely as far as we can. Like, I think uh, even like a big part of Bitcoin's appeal, for example, is the fact that, you know, you can understand how the protocol works even as a high school student. Um, and that's something that not a lot of modern technology has. Um, so trying to, uh, like, I think if you deviate too much from that spirit, then you start creating a system where like, okay, it's just, like spooky magic thing and only 39 people get it then you start getting into like well why should i even trust the thing right yeah. like a protocol that only 39 people understand is really just another kind of trusted setup uh, yeah. so that's uh something that we want to avoid and, and also like you need people to understand it enough so that like for example people that are kind of sufficiently disconnected from the original development process so they're not going to have the same biases and they might have different biases would be able to just look at it with fresh eyes and see if they find any like bugs or even any like things that ha- like properties of the protocol that have bad consequences that could be, that could be fixed. That's a big so, part, I think. I, I think that's a really important yeah. point. Like, because for the longest time we lacked the like threshold of legitimacy across the entire blockchain ecosystem for um, professionals in various degree and fields to come in and, and weigh in. And mm-hmm. if you have this complexity problem where it, them weighing in is very very difficult, they're never going to do it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, I think that's very true. And it's uh, you know making the protocol simpler is definitely really important to kind of analyzability. Though, in addition to the protocol itself, there's also the presentation of the protocol. Like I think. Uh, Protocols can be presented in ways that are more simple versus more complex. And we can talk about what different parts of the protocol in isolation. So like you can split it up into, you know, okay, here's the proof of stake and, and here's the like LMD ghost and the finality. And then here's charting and here's committees and here's data availability proofs. And if the pro, if a protocol can be kind of factored out into uh, kind of mostly separate components that have a specific function, then that tends to be simpler to grok than if you have like really complicated cross dependencies everywhere. So mm-hmm. that's another thing that we can uh, try to uh, keep in mind. Okay, great. I, I think that's a great way to wrap this up. Dean, do you have anything else? No. All right, Vitalik, is there, yeah. is there anything that you would have liked me to ask you that I didn't get around to asking you? Mm, I can't think of anything, I don't know. All right, well. I definitely thank you for coming on. We appreciate your time and uh, hope to have you back and keep up the good work. No, thank you. Good. Awesome.